Welcome to the Old Chick Snowship Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Arthurton. This podcast is dedicated to helping midlife women step into the inherent power and wisdom of a time of life when they often feel overlooked and underrepresented and even begin to doubt themselves. Each week, we will cover information and inspirational topics along with real stories from real women who are defying cultural stereotypes and perceptions of midlife. Women who are reinventing themselves, starting businesses, chasing their dreams, and tackling challenges they never thought possible. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Old Chicks No Ship podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about a midlife reinvention story that, from the moment I heard it, completely blew me away. It is beyond brave. And yeah, anyway, I'm not even going to say anymore because we're going to get into it. But with me today, I have Anne Hill, who spent two decades in a senior level position in Scientology. And she, at the age of 47, made the decision to leave Scientology and basically had to rebuild her life from scratch, like every single part of her life from the ground up at the age of 47. And she has now gone on to become a successful copywriter and an author. She has just recently written a book about her experience with Scientology. So I am so honored that we get to have this conversation. And I said to her just before we jumped on that, I'm like, we are definitely having this conversation again when the book hits the market, because I think it's a story that absolutely everybody needs to hear. So welcome, Anne. I am so honored to have you join us. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I'm very, very pleased to be here and tell this story. It's taken a long time for me to get to the point where I can tell it. So this is a great format. And people's stories are so, so, so important. Like, you know, people might not necessarily resonate with everyone's entire story, but there are parts of people's stories that they can see themselves in. And it gives people so much hope and inspiration. So tell us a little bit about how you got into Scientology in the first place, because that's always my question is like, how do people end up here? Well, I can tell you this. First of all, you don't get into a cult thinking, hey, I want to join a cult today. You know, that's going to solve all my issues. I was 28. I was going through, you know, on the outside, my life looked awesome. But we all have hard times in life. And we hit times where we're especially vulnerable. At Mm. this point, I was divorced. I just started my own business, which was going fine, even though I had no idea what I was doing financially, like I was losing money left and right. I was having an affair with a married man for years and I could not stop myself. You know, that feeling like you're obsessed. Yeah. And I read every book. I read every book, you know, women who love men who hate them and all those books, you know, right. This was back in the eighties. This was 1988. And I was slowly killing myself. I was addicted to cocaine. I was drinking every day and I was looking for something and my family wasn't, wasn't around me. I had some friends, but I, I was living in San Francisco. My family was scattered. My parents had moved to Florida and didn't really have that, don't you dare do this kind of person around me. Right. So I had gone to a, for want of a better word, life coach back in the day when they were just starting out. Like there mm-hmm. really weren't a lot of life coaches in 1988, right. but I went to one. What I didn't know was she was a Scientologist because she never told me. She just would help me with all these different things in my life, you know, dealing with people and she'd give me some tools and they would work, you know, how to better communicate with people, how to handle my emotions better, things like this. And they all worked. So I was like, wow, this is cool. 
And it took me a few months before I told her what was really going on with me, with the drugs and the mm-hmm. drinking and the affairs and all this. And she, she looked at me and she said, how would you like for that to go away completely and never have to deal with it again? And I was like, you're full of crap. That, that can't happen. She said, yeah, I can. It's true. I mean, there are answers to the problems that you have. And I was like, mm, okay, well, how's that going to happen? And she said, and I trusted her by this time because I've been talking to her right. for a while. And she said, well, I, there's this guy I know. Why don't you make an appointment and go see him? I went and made an appointment with this guy. And I'll t- I talk all about it in my book. But as it turns out, he was what's called a Scientology field auditor, which means auditing in Scientology is, is therapy counseling. That's their term for it. Scientology right. is full of jargon. That's what cults do. They're full of jargon so you don't understand it. And right. it makes an us versus them thing. Right. Anyway, I went to him and he gave me a personality test and told me all the things that were wrong with me. And I agreed with every single one of them because, you know, that's how I was feeling. Of course. And then he said, well, you know, I can help you. And then I went, yeah, okay. And then I went away for a while. And about a week later, one of my best friends died of AIDS and I lost my mind. I absolutely lost it mm-hmm. because his family was Catholic and would not accept the fact that he was even gay besides, you know, right. having AIDS and dying. He was, you know, 27 like me. And it just, it tore my world apart. It was like the straw that broke the camel's back as it were. Right. Right. So this guy calls me. I don't know how he knew this, but he called me the same day and said, how are you doing? And I just, you know, went into tears. and So he said, come see me. I can help you. It was like a command. I didn't even think I went to see him. And that's how it all started. He actually, you know, the way any cult will get you in Scientology specifically, the way they get you in is they teach you these things. And they, they suck you in with stuff that seems really usable and it actually really works in life. You know, right. that's how they get you to begin with. And he worked with me for a, quite a bit of time. And I, within two months, I wasn't drinking and I was not doing drugs anymore. And I had given up my affair and I felt better than I had in years. So I thought, well, there's got to be something to this because, mm. I, you know, that's how they do it. Right. It's not like I went into it and thought, well, this is crazy. So I think I'm going to keep going. It was, wow, this really is helping me. Maybe. And here's the big part. Maybe I can help other people with this. So this is really interesting because like, okay, I've seen documentaries on Scientology and, you know, I've watched that Leah Remedy show and everything. And part of it says like the question I always had and still have is like, how do people end up here? Like, are they like not smart? Are they like, were they, but then you look and you're like, some of the most intelligent people in the world are in Scientology. So then you're like, like, so what is it that makes them susceptible to this? Cause I like to think, and I'm sure everybody thinks this, if I spotted a cult, I would know it right away and I would run away. But the point that you just nope. made that's interesting is they really are playing on people's, like able to spot vulnerabilities and then play on in them. And it's like a slow reeling in. Mm-hmm. It's like boiling a frog. Boiling frog, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You put the frog in cold water and you just slowly turn up the heat and that's how it works. And pretty soon you're in and you don't even remember how you got in anymore because you're so indoctrinated. And the indoctrination part is something that is so complex that it's, it wouldn't be something that I could really explain here. I explain a lot about it in the book. It takes years and years and years, but pretty at some point you're just, I'm all in because this is the truth and everything else isn't. You know, so, and they just do a really, really good job of it. 
unfortunately. Nowadays, there's the internet. In 1987, there was no internet. Right. There was nobody I could talk to. It's not like I could right. research it myself and try to figure it out. I mean, I could have if I'd really wanted to be, but I was searching. I was searching like anybody's searching at 27, but I was, you know, I was through. I was divorced. I was, yeah. you know, self-medicating like crazy. And I was looking. So do you think most of the people who get into something like Scientology are people who are searching? Like they're searching for something? They're either searching or they're vulnerable or both, mm. you know? And when you're really vulnerable and when something happens in your life that knocks you sideways, Anybody who says to you, you know, somebody can come in who's very kind and very loving, apparently, and say, I can help you. And you're like, okay, let me check this out, you know? Right. And then, like, if you're like me, I was always one of those people, and I still am. If I believe in something, I am 1,000% involved in it. Right. Boom, I dive in. I've always been impulsive in that way. My whole life. And it was something my family would always say, can you just step back a little bit? <laughs> Never. Not me. Uh-uh. And wow. that, you know, to my detriment in this case, but then again, maybe not because I learned a lot and now I'm able to tell my story and help other people. Yeah. And I truly believe that everything happens the way it's supposed to happen, that, that there's some lesson, some goodness, something in it yeah. that we needed to get. So, so okay, so you get into Scientology and you obviously work your way through the ranks. Yeah, pretty rapidly, let's put it that way. Within, so in, I joined staff at a little Scientology, what's called a mission, which is like the smallest Scientology organization. They teach the basic introductory services and get you up to a certain level. Mm -hmm. And then... Within, let's see, that was 1990. By 1993, I was at International Management of Scientology, which wow. is, yeah, and I was doing all the, I wrote and edited every single magazine for International Scientology for 14 years. Wow. More than that, sorry, longer than that. But in any case, I did a lot of writing and a lot, and a lot of propaganda, and I must have gotten thousands of people into Scientology, which I, to this day, am still coming to terms with. And it's been, you know, it, it, it's a lot to come to terms with. But in order to be in international management, you have to join what's called the C organization, which is when you hear about the abuses of Scientology, that's where the abuses are. I mean, not only, right, but the majority, you know, so I was working 18 to 20 hour days, hardly sleeping, eating rice and beans for the most part. Sometimes I get a good meal. Yeah, living in 12 people to an apartment, you know, with other women and getting paid maybe $40 a week if I was on a good week because, you know, we were volunteers. Right. We were, quote unquote, you sign away your life when you sign up to join the Sea Org. You sign away everything. You're in and you're saving the planet. So you're going to do whatever you can do to do that. However, it becomes this incredibly... I mean, it's mind control, right? So right. you're not thinking for yourself anymore. And everything you do is for the betterment of Scientology. And that's it. And right. you're exhausted all the time. So you can't think. And your behavior is controlled. Your mind is controlled. Your thoughts are controlled. Everything is controlled. So it's, it takes a long time to get out of that if you ever do. So, you know, obviously along the way you believed, like you truly believed that you were oh. doing the right thing. Like, what was the point where you started to question it? Like, what was the hmm. thing that like, just kind of started to twist your mind a little bit where you're like, hmm, you know what, maybe this isn't what, it is, what I think it is. Oh, I think it started out from the very beginning. I mean, but the cognitive dissonance 
is so intense that you just turn it off. Like you have to believe it. So, and so, so I went along for a long time and then maybe, I mean, even when I was scrubbing the corners of a dish room with a toothbrush on my knees for eight hours, I still didn't think there was anything wrong with it because I believe I deserved that. I had done something to pull it in mm-hmm. that punishment. I had a lot of, there was a lot of punishment. So I guess for me, the thing that started me to see that there was a different way of doing things was when I was kicked out of international management by David Miscavige, who's the head of Scientology. Right. I did something he didn't, I did something he didn't like. So he kicked me out and made me stay in Florida at the flag service organization, which is the top technical organization for Scientology in Clearwater. Right. Just that, you know, they've taken over Clearwater, but we're working on it. But in any case, <laughs> I was there and, and being there after I got through all of my punishment, I was working in, I was ahead of their marketing and promotion department. And I had a lot more freedom in terms of being able to talk to my family. There was a phone in my office. My office was not in the main buildings. It was kind Mm -hmm. of off to the side. And there was a phone in there that people could call in on, which was totally unusual. In the Sea Org, you don't, people just can't call into you and talk to you. But my mother would call me and I found out she could. So she started calling me once a week and just saying, hi, how are you? I love you. And nothing else. She would never say anything bad about Scientology. She would never. And you can imagine how she must have felt. She hadn't seen me for almost 20 years. She never thought she'd ever see me again. But she was so smart. She knew that if she pushed me, I would just keep away from her. Right. So it was the constant realization that that my family was out there and they still loved me and they, you know, respected me and did not treat me as other. I began to look around me and go, well, why am I, you know, hmm, that's interesting. Why am I being told I'm suppressing all of Scientology because I didn't get a mail order campaign done and I'm being screamed at day and night and having to do, you know, working 18 hour days for nothing. Hmm. Hmm. And it started to unravel a little bit because I could see the difference between what I thought, because what you learn in Scientology is that anyone who's not a Scientologist is far lesser of a being. And what they're doing out there in the world is not important. You know, but I I began to see that maybe there was, and I tried to leave twice, but I didn't really try kind of walked out, but was gotten back really fast because if you leave, then you forfeit your entire eternity. Well, first you forfeit all your friends, anyone you've ever known in Scientology, they'll never speak to you again. And you're, but the most important thing is, you know, you really truly believe this is the only way you're going to achieve total spiritual freedom. So when you leave, it's over for eternity, you're done. So when you say over, like, so what is your perception of being done is? So like you leave Scientology, what is the expectation for the rest of your life outside of Scientology, according to Scientology? (laughs) That you are, quote unquote, what's called a degraded being. You are the lowest of the low in terms of your ability to progress nothing left for you. And the fact that you uh, do anything more than flip burgers at McDonald's would be a miracle because there's no way that you will survive. Wow. That's what I was, that's what I was taught. That's what I believe. That's what we all believe. Like if you leave Scientology, your life is going to be hell. It's going to be horrible and you know, you'll never succeed. 
Well, and I can see that, especially when if you enter Scientology from a place where you are genuinely unhappy, what you think is you are making a choice to return to that. Correct. Yeah, right. that's what you think. Right. But even worse, but return to it, but at an even lower Work. level than when you came in. Because at least when you came in, you weren't aware, so you were okay. Right. But now that you're aware of what's available to you, if you choose to leave it, then all bets are off. You're toast. So, you know, you, you just mentioned that you tried to leave a couple of times. Like, what was it about, you know, the time that you, okay, so like, and maybe you can just walk us through this. So you make this decision, okay, this time I'm actually leaving. Like, what, mm-hmm. what does the process of leaving look like? Well, there's two ways you can leave. You can say you want to leave, and then you have to go through months and months of interrogation and sign all these agreements that you'll never talk about Scientology. And they try very hard to get you to not leave through all these interrogations. Yeah, of course, I they're just trying to just trying to get you back into the same mindset you were in before. That's one way. The second way is you can attempt suicide. If you attempt suicide, then you're automatically out. So a lot of people did that. Wow. Mm-hmm. A lot of people did that. So you don't a actually people, have to kill yourself. You just have to attempt no. it. Correct. And then you're out. Yikes. Yeah, true story. I know a lot of people who did that and they got out that way. The third way is just to what's called blow, which means leave without authorization, which is how I did it in the middle of the night. And uh, that's what happened to me. And then, of course, they come after you and you, if you're lucky like me, and I'm not going to tell you that story because that's a crazy one. But if you're lucky and you have a family like mine, then you get to travel across the country in a big rig for 28 days and they can't follow you because they don't know where you are. So that's literally what you did. So you left Mm -hmm. and like, okay, so when you leave, where are you going? Like what in your mind, where are you going? (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll tell you this story. So my parents fortunately live, we, well, I live here now in Lakeland where they are. Well, they live an hour from Clearwater, an hour and a half. So what happened was I got an okay. I got okay to go to their 60th wedding anniversary celebration. Right. Which what took a lot to get that okay, but I got okay to go. So I rented a car. For some reason I had a driver's license. Do not know how that oh, I guess for an ID. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any credit, but I I was able to rent a car because the enterprise car rental place rented to Sea Org members because they made a lot of money. So they said, Whatever, we'll just rent to you. Right. So I had a car, I drove down. I was only allowed to go for that day, for that night to go to right. the, to their party. And then I had to come right back. So I could get back to work, you know, the next morning on a Sunday morning. So I came down, I drove down for the party. I spent an incredible evening with my family and my extended family that I hadn't seen in years. Not one person said anything to me about Scientology. Not one. They didn't ask any questions. All they did was, we're so happy to see you. We missed you so much. Lots of love, mm-hmm. you know, wow. and I was like, I was like, it was great. And so that night I thought, I was going to go back and my older brother, who was an over-the-road trucker, he and his wife were staying at the local Holiday Inn because they didn't live in Lakeland. He said, why don't you just stay with us? It's late. And then you can go back in the morning. And I was like, yeah, great. They don't have to know. I'll be home in time for morning muster because, you know, it was very military. So you had to line up every three times a day and have muster. Right. So, So they can account for everybody. Okay. So they had to account for me at nine o'clock the next morning. So I had to make sure I was back in time for that. So I spent the night, got up early, came back and I was feeling great. I was feeling like, well, that was really great. You know, and I had a wonderful time with my family and now I'm back 
back at it and I'm renewed and I'm going to keep going and da 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 and clear the planet. And, you know, that's a whole other story. Save the planet. So I came back. I immediately got called into a meeting and just screamed at for not getting some marketing campaign done in time. And it was just, it was the juxtaposition. That's what snapped Mm -hmm. me out of it. It was this beautiful, loving situation and coming back to this just barrage of, you know, screaming and cursing and calling me names and which was what I was used to. Right. Not like I didn't do that to other people too. And something snapped, something just snapped. And I went, "Mm, I think I'm done here, but I didn't say anything, of course. Right. Because I I knew if I said something, I had to go through all that other stuff that I didn't want to do. And I knew there was a place for me to go. So I was told I had to stay up all night and my team and I had to work on a marketing campaign, stay up all night to do it. So I went back to my office and I said to my team, we need to work on a marketing campaign and stay up all night. But I don't want you guys to do that. I don't think that's fair because this is my problem. So you guys go home and I'll stay. So I sent them home to their birthing, right? right? I stayed and I spent the whole night from 10 o'clock at night till eight o'clock in the morning, staring at my computer rewriting the same letter over and over again. It was like a, like a dear John letter, right? It's not you, it's me. You can can tell me that I am the reason that all of this is falling apart. It's okay with me because I'm done. I'm done. I don't know what happened, but I just went, I'm done. That's it. I'm out of here. So, but in my head, it kept going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah. And finally it was eight o'clock in the morning and I knew that they would be looking for me at nine o'clock. So I was now or never. So I printed out the letter, stuck it on the computer and walked out the door with my purse. And that's all I had. My uniform, my purse and a couple of case, I think a case of CDs or DVDs or something that I had right. been like burning on the fly or something, you know, I don't know. Get in the car, which I didn't have to turn into later that day. So I got in the car and I drove to Lakeland and I was scared to death because I, I knew they were going to come for me. My paranoia was real. It wasn't like, fake paranoia. This is real. So I said, well, I can't go to my mom and dad's house because they know where they live. I can't go to my younger brother's house because they know where he lives because they know everything about you. Right. Everything. Right. Because you tell them everything about you. They can use it against you. And there's a reason for that. That's a long, uh, that's a whole other story. So I think, okay, I'm going to go to the Holiday Inn because I know where it is. And hopefully they'll still be there. My older brother and his wife. Right. So I drive into the Holiday Inn parking lot and my brother's truck is gone. And I am, oh my God, what am I going to do? They're going to get me. They're going to, you know, and I know this sounds crazy, but it's true. So I decide I'm going to go up to the room anyway. So I go up to the room, knock on the door, and my sister-in-law answers the door. And I just broke down. (gasps) And she looked at me and she said, what are you doing here? I said, I left. She grabbed me and yanked me into the room, right? Closed the door. She said, you left? I said, I'm done. I'm never going back. I left. And she just started crying. Right. Mm. And I said, I said, where's my brother? Where's Alan? She said, well, actually I'm on the phone with him right now because he's in, he's getting his truck ready to go. And she's like, she left. And he said, I need to talk to her. So I, I pick up the phone and he said, and I, you know, I don't have, I don't have a cell phone. I don't know what a cell phone is. Right. I don't have any of that stuff. Right. So I pick up his little Motorola razor phone and I'm like, Oh, I left. And he says, don't worry, baby sister. They're never going to get you. You're coming with me. And he got me an okay to go on the road with him in his truck across the country 
to deliver whatever. Right. And it was 25 or 26 days of being in that truck with him on the road. So they had no idea where I was. Wow. How incredible. And then I came back and stayed with my parents until I got on my feet again. My 80 year old parents. Wow. So, okay. So you drive across the country (laughs) basically for a month. They can't find you. You finally feel safe enough to come back. Right. Now here you are a 47 year old woman basically going, okay, I have no knife, no money, no job, no nothing. I'm starting over. Where do you eat? How do you even begin that journey? Well, I think I was really fortunate because I had a mother. Well, I still have her. She's 95. She's pretty awesome. Who said to me, because when I first got back, all I did was I was frantic. I was looking for work. I was doing all this. She came in one day. She looked at me, said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to get a job. I got to get a job. She says, you've got to get nothing. What you need to do right now is sleep. You need to sleep and sleep some more and rest and eat and do nothing. We will take care of you. You need to just chill out. She's the smartest woman to know this because cult experts will tell you that's the thing you need to do when you leave a cult Mm. is rest. So I, after my rest period, which was, I don't know, that lasted a couple of months. She wouldn't let me do anything. She's tough. My mother, even though she was 80 something, she's tough. Even though I was 47, I didn't feel like that. Right. She said, I'm not going to lose you again. I lost you once. It's never going to happen again. You know? And so I, while I was resting, once I had enough of an idea that I could think again, kind of for myself, I started looking at the internet. You know, this is 19, no, this is 2003. So the internet was in its infancy, but there was a lot of message boards, Scientology message boards out there. So I started looking and I found out a whole bunch of stuff that I had no idea about. I started learning the truth about what I'd been through. Right. So there's no way that I could have begun to even look for a job with all that going on in my head. So, so once I was able to connect up with some old friends who used to be where I was and got out, I felt a little bit more like they helped me come up with ideas of how to look for work. So the first thing I did was, (laughs) imagine writing a resume and trying to say what you've done for the last 20 years. Right. That's impossible. Right. So I I did that and I went to a temp agency and they just kind of said, yeah, yeah, we'll call you. Right. Of course they didn't call me. Right. You know? So, so I'm like, what am I going to do? And my friend, Jeff Hawkins, who was in the seat at management with me, he said, here's how I did it. And he taught me, how to write the resume in such a way that it talks about skills, but you don't talk about Scientology. You talk about, you know, buildings or organization names or whatever. And with that, I was able to get a part-time job at Bath and Body Works. I was able to get a part-time job at Starbucks. I was excited about this because you got to understand, I would have worked anywhere. I felt like I, you know, I was starting from nothing and I, I guess the one thing I would say is I never felt like I was too proud to start at the bottom again and work Mm -hmm. my way up. Right. Which I think is really important because Mm -hmm. it's not like I was trying to find a marketing job. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, or a a writing job. 
I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. I wanted to find a job where I felt like I could build my confidence again. You know, selling, you know, bath and body work stuff was great. And I did really well, of course. You know, I was a little overqualified. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I had a college degree that I never used. And, you know, Starbucks, I did great. And I slowly started to see that maybe there was more that I could offer than what I thought. Because you don't have any self-esteem left when you leave a cult. Yeah. You just don't. Yeah. So it was a very slow process. And I never had to go anywhere. I could stay as much my parents as long as I wanted to. There was no pressure to go look for a, you know, to go out on your own. As a matter of fact, I think they would have liked it if I stayed longer, you know, but I, yeah. I didn't have, I had that opportunity. And that's the other thing I would say is I wasn't afraid to take the help that was offered to me right. at that time. And it was mostly because I did not know what else to do. So I took the help and I, you know, I just kept moving. It's like one little step at a time. Right. Yeah. And, and, and then once I started feeling more comfortable with working part-time jobs, by the way, those two part-time jobs paid more in a year than I'd made <laughs> in all the 14 years in the Sea Org to combined. I, I was literally just thinking that. I'm like, you must be like, like I'm rolling a dough now. <laughs> oh, I was like, $8.50 an hour. Yes. Woo. You know. Oh, my I was goodness. Making less, less than Chinese labor wages. You know how, how they talk about how poor in other countries the, the, the wages are? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's true. It's horrible. But it's, I mean, in the Sea Org, it's, it's, it's even less. Like, if you figure out, I worked. 18 to 20 hours a day for 14 years. And I made a total of maybe $24,000 over that 14 year period. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Crazy, right? It's totally crazy. And, you know, it's interesting as you're talking, you know, like there's key things that I think are common to every reinvention story. Like it's was part of my own and it's like what I see with my clients and other stories that I tell on this podcast. And of course, yours is the very far extreme of that. So not that I'm comparing, but what I find interesting is these kind of common things where you hit some kind of rock bottom where your current situation is just no longer tenable for whatever reason that is. Like everybody has their own reasons, right? And then you go through this period of surrender almost where you have to literally stop moving like, and even like I had to do this when I left, you know, a 30 year corporate career, I literally had to just pull back for a few months and like right. not do anything. Like you just said, sleep, rest, like figure out like wh what was in my brain. I was also extremely burnt out at that point. So it was kind of like recovering some energy in my brain so that I could process a thought. Right. So exactly. a very, very necessary period of, of surrender and then getting to the point where you can see yourself as capable enough to learn something. Like I don't know yeah. everything, but I am willing to try and being willing to try because there's so much of a narrative, especially around midlife women that says, you know, when you reach like your 40, your late forties and your fifties, like that's the beginning of the end, start rolling up the carpet because you're on your way out. <laughs> right. And, and right. it's at that point where we need to be able to see ourselves as, you know, strong and capable to maybe we don't have all the answers, but we're willing to go and try stuff, which is exactly, exactly. Right. right. That's what I had to do. Exactly. But right. that's so, so true. 
I could have gone one of two ways. I could have just said, okay, I'm just going to lay here at mom's couch until she dies and then I'll just take the house. You know, I could have done that. Well, yeah, exactly. I didn't. And then the last point, it's like, yeah, asking for help. And this is the biggest one that I find most midlife women, not most midlife women, most women struggle with. And it was, again, it was the same thing for me when I left corporate and I'm like, okay, I want my life to be different. I was like, okay, I need to show up differently in my life if I wanted to be different. And it was the first time I ever thought about reaching out to a coach or somebody Right. But you have to get right. to that place where you're like, I don't know the answers and I'm willing to humble myself enough to have somebody tell me. Yes, exactly. So, exactly. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, isn't, it, is isn't like, it interesting that, that even with like my situation, it's yeah. the same story. Right. It's fascinating because like coming into this, I wasn't necessarily thinking about it that way. But as you're telling the story, I'm like, oh, yeah, like there's that. And, and it's comforting in a way. <laughs> To know that regardless of how severe or not severe your situation is, that there's the same process that you you go through. Yeah, it's very, very interesting, isn't it? And it's a lot of what I talk about in my book because the book, sure, there's a lot about Scientology in it, but it's more about how do you reinvent yourself from scratch and build your life again from zero, you know? And a lot of people need to know that it's possible. Absolutely. I mean, that was my story after lying in my bed for like, you know, like a couple of months going poor me after like divorced, unemployed, empty nester, and, you know, had a stress related illness. Like took me like three, probably three months of lying in bed, like going like, what the hell is wrong with me? Where did I go wrong? Like, how did I end up here? Big old pity party before I got to this place where I was like, okay, girl, pick yourself up. (laughs) Let's figure this thing out. And that's why I wanted to, that's why I want to tell stories like yours is because that's what I needed. Like I needed to see that. And I, this is where I think your book is going to be, I mean, A, it's a fascinating story to begin with because everybody's fascinated about cult with cults. Like, right. Like how does it happen? And then from right. there on like the journey through reinvention that you are now a super successful copywriter. You are an author that is going to be like a, that's going to be a bestseller. Let me tell you. Um, <laughs> let's, yeah. let's hope. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and I were chatting just before we jumped on the podcast and I'm like, I am definitely having you back after I read the book because I need to know all of these other stories and we could go on for like three hours oh, here. Right. For sure, um, for like sure. to peel it apart. But I love, I, I just like, there's so much goodness in your story and like your, your strength of character to be able to just be able to always see a little bit ahead, just a tiny bit mm-hmm. ahead. Like you didn't have the whole road. You just saw the little glimmer. Right. Like walking away from everything you've known for for 20 years and you're just like, I don't know what this holds for me, but I know there's something just on the other side of this fence. (laughs) Yep. And it's really interesting because it's not just walking away from everything I knew. It's walking away from an entire belief system. Like imagine if you were in a coma for 20 years. That's what I write in my book. You're in a coma for 20 years and you come out of it. You know, what do you do? Like, I really had no idea what I really believed anymore. I had no idea because you're, you know, your whole belief system shifts. To, and I had, I trusted no one. It was, was the ultimate, be, ultimate betrayal. I felt betrayed in the greatest sense that you could possibly be betrayed is when somebody takes your entire system of belief and shows you that it's a sham and everything you did for 20 years was a sham, you know? What you thought you were doing something so good and it was so not. Right. Like you believed wholeheartedly. You worked hard for what you believed in. Yeah. Because when I believe in something, I work hard for it. 
That's why my clients love me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so what do you, what do you do now? Like you're a freelance copywriter, I think. Yeah, I, I write, I'm a content writer and I specialize with, for women owned businesses, women entrepreneurs and women owned, women owned businesses, because, well, I just think women should rule the world, basically. So I want to support, I want to support them every way I can. And I do mostly, you know, I do email content writing, I do blog posts, I do, but basically any kind of writing, promotional writing that a person would need to get clients and keep them. I do a lot of work with companies that uh, are doing like client retention and continuing the conversation with their clients right. because a lot of people drop the ball on that. Yeah. Like they do a lot of work to get the client and then they don't continue. You yeah. know, they'll do a lot of work to get that email list, but then how do they nurture it? Right. What are they, right. are they doing all those things? That's my sweet spot. That's what I love to do. Amazing. Yeah. So if you like, so obviously looking back on your story, like what is like the one or two like big lessons that you like take away from this whole experience? Like, I'm sure there's thousands of them. Wow. Wow. Like, is there, if, the, yeah, go ahead. There's one big one. When I first came out of Scientology and I was starting my life over my sister, who is quite amazing, but my sister looked at me and she said, it's your time now. This is your time. And you may not believe it, and you may not think you have a future, but you do. And this is your time. You can make anything of your life that you want. And you never, and she was telling me back then, she said, you know, what you went through is going to help other people in the future. I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want to hear it. I was yeah. like, yeah, whatever. I still didn't want to go through all that, right? But she says, no, your, your time is now. Your you know, and maybe, and, and never did anybody ever say, well, you're, you know, but you're 47. So what are you going to do? Yeah. And my big lesson was your time is now, you know, this is when you start, no matter where you are, you start and you move forward. Oh, that is so beautiful because I 100% believe that when we reach this point in our life, everything that's happened before us, before that is actually everything we need to create the life that we've always wanted. Yes. And that we can't even get to like, you know, I call it creating your kick-ass next chapter. You can't have, you couldn't create your kick-ass next chapter had you not had that experience. And that's why your story is so important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this whole idea that, you know, like what I was saying before, yes, yeah, midlife women, it's like roll up the carpet, you're going home. When the reality is, as midlife women, we have so much knowledge and wisdom and ex experience and expertise. And we get to this point where we just need to believe in it and to believe in ourselves enough and to believe in our stories enough right. to be able to now uncover our gifts. Like I feel that way Correct. about my life. And it, like, I mean, it's definitely true about yours. Mm -hmm. It's true about all women who reach a, this age, I mean, I'm 60 now and I feel like I'm just starting. I mean, yeah. For, fortunately, I have good genes because my mom's 95 and going strong. So I'm like, well, I got a good three, four decades to go. I may as well make the most of it. Well, and right? that's the thing. Gonna, yeah. I'm not going to sit back. Well, and that's the thing. When you reach 50, like, and I actually, I say this is like the longest, actually the longest chapter of your life. Because when you reach 50, if the average age we live to is 80, you have 30 years ahead of you. That's right. like the longest of any chapter in your life yet. Mm -hmm. So like, are you going to exactly. give up and do nothing for 30 years? No, 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 no. You're going to go chase. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And for me, there was a lot of extra on it because I felt like I was 
kind of starting where I left off at 28, you know, like all the things that I didn't do. I could have looked at it one of two ways. I could have just sat in all the shame and regret and all of those. And I believe me, I took a lot of work to get through all that. I'm I'm still working through it every day. I'm a work in progress, but I could have gone well, you know, I've messed up my life. So now I guess I'll just, you know, do whatever, but, uh, you know, or I could have said, well, that was then all these things are making me who I am now. What can I learn from this? What can I learn that I can take with me into the future? And I learned a lot. I learned how to work long hours. (laughs) I learned, I learned how, like, it's really funny. My clients say to me, sometimes they'll say, well, if I have any changes, are you okay with any kind of like constructive feedback? And I just laugh at them and think, oh, man, you mean you're not going to scream at me and tell me I'm the worst <laughs> copywriter in the history of the world? If I give you something, you're good. I, I am Teflon, man. You can tell I me can anything imagine. about my writing. It doesn't affect me at all. Amazing. So that's a positive, right? That that's huge. That's huge. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, this is a fascinating story. And, you know, so many of the women listening to this podcast are at this point in their life where they're kind of staring into what I call the void of their next chapter. Like they know what's what's not working, but when they look forward, they're like, okay, well, what is, right? And I think hearing stories like yours where you don't have to see the whole picture, you just need to take a step in a direction. And let it unfold and trust that you have everything that you need to unfold in the direction that you want it to go. I think that's a beautiful way to put it because that's exactly what I had to do. You know, and I just took every opportunity that was presented to me, I saw as an opportunity. And I went, I'm going to try that. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Yeah, I'm going to jump into retail management. I mean, I never worked in a retail clothing store, but I was like, yeah, I'm going to jump into that. Why not? I'll learn something from this. I'm going to learn something from this. And that was how I, and then, uh, I mean, step by step by step by step. And I look at my life now and I'm like, well, still, there's so much more ahead of me, you know, and I'm just going to take it one step at a time. I know. I actually say all the time, I can't wait to see what I'm doing when I'm 80. (laughs) Right? It's going to be good. (laughs) I know. I feel that way too. It's going to be like, woohoo. Yeah. I agree. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. It is so inspiring. It's beyond brave and courageous. And you are a light in this world, for sure. I can't wait till your book comes out. And everybody listening to this, like Anne's book has not yet been published. But as soon as it is, you can expect to see it featured here again. We'll definitely have you back on the podcast so we can dive into some of the other stories. But I will be heavily promoting that because this is such an inspirational story that I think every everybody needs to hear, but especially women who are thinking about their next chapter or you know reinventing themselves from scratch. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your low point is that you can create. I mean, you're living your dream life now, right? You're living in Florida, really you're married. I am married to the most wonderful man in the entire universe. Really, honestly, he's the greatest man. And oh, did I think that was gonna happen? Right. Absolutely right. not but I was open to it. You got to stay open to it. You never know what's going to come to you. Oh, so good. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody stay tuned for more information on Anne's book when it comes out. And I can't wait to share this episode. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you for listening to the Old Chicks No Shit podcast. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend, subscribe, rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen in. 